Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Sporting Mind UK podcast. My name is Ollie Westbury and as usual I will be your host today. I'm very excited about this episode of the podcast because I spoke to Gwen Davis, a female cricketer who currently represents the Birmingham Phoenix, Central Sparks and Warwickshire. Since her career began in 2007, she rep- she's since re- represented Wales, Somerset, the Yorkshire Diamonds and the Surrey Stars. But what's equally impressive about Gwen is she does this and represents these teams whilst running the girls cricket full-time at Shrewsbury School. This must make her a very busy woman indeed and something that we discuss on the podcast is how she finds time to have a social life. This is a very enlightening episode and Gwen speaks particularly our speaks articulately about her experiences with the first ever 100 competition. I hope you enjoy this one, folks. Right, Gwen, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. All thanks for having me on. It's been a long time no see. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, good that you're all right. Uh, I'm just going to start off by giving the listeners a, a brief little uh, rundown of um, what we're just going to talk through today and also give you a heads up, even though I have just brief, briefly mentioned it to you before. Um, so we're just going to have a chat about your cricket, uh, the women's game in general and the 100. Obviously, it's the first year of that this year. So we want to know how it was, how it went, what it was like to be a part of. And also um, about your work-life, professional life balance as head of girls cricket at the school and having a social life and being a professional cricketer. Um, so I can imagine what that must be like but firstly just to kick us off um, there's a lot of progress being made in the women's game at the moment even though there's still some serious contentious issues like playing on used pitches and stuff like that for test matches and stuff like that Um, but as a whole what kind of progress do you think the women's game is actually making? Yeah I think I mean you know it's made huge strides in the last couple of years definitely I mean I think I think back to when I was it was the first year of university for me, so God, nearly ten years ago now. I think it was around by the time where the England women were first contracted. Um, so it's obviously taken about 10, 10 or twelve years for it to sort of move down to regional level um, and sort of strengthen. Because I think what we had, that the county system that we had, probably wasn't the quality of cricket that the ECB were after, and the gap between. Uh, the county structure and the international game was just huge. And I think their main aim, obviously, was to close the gap so that the jump from county cricket to international cricket wasn't as big as it was. Because um, I think of someone like a Tammy Beaumont that would have gone from playing for senior women's county cricket to making her England debut. And that jump back then would have been quite substantial. So I think... Quite big, yeah. They, yeah, they definitely closed that gap by having these regions. There was an argument of what happens to those county cricketers that don't quite cut the mustard for regional level? Um, is there still county cricket or some sort of cricket for them to play? Because obviously club women's cricket at club level isn't isn't sort of as of quality. In certain areas, you do get some sort of like super clubs, if you like, where you'd find a handful or, you know, a small group of county cricketers and made that club, you know, a decent club outfit. Um, but so I think they've gone the right way. That You know, they've strengthened the... the the level and the quality of cricket below international level, and that gap is certainly starting to get to get smaller. Um, and we're seeing more and more girls teams now in schools, and not just you know the good one or two individuals just thrown into the boys teams, which I think is still needs to happen because it obviously it strengthens strengthens those individuals when they play with the boys. They make them better cricketers. It makes them stronger characters. But you're seeing more girls teams now across schools in England and Wales, and I think that's what you know 
that's what the ECB are trying to achieve is that, you know, the bigger picture is what they're looking after. So, yeah, I'd say we're going the right way. Um, it's the first year of the 100 this year. Mm-hmm. Talk me through that. That looked like an absolute whirlwind to be a part of. Um, yeah. Talk me through it. It was an unbelievable experience. I think, I know this is thrown around quite often and it's a bit of a, it's come a bit of a cliche, but I reckon it was definitely the best five, six weeks of my life. That was unreal. The the hotels that you're thrown in, the players that you played with. Um, and I think the ECB nailed it in the top, you know, the target audience and the people that they were sort of trying to, to gauge. They, they went after the families yeah. and, and the younger yeah. children. And I honestly do think they've nailed it because the kids absolutely loved it. You could see it in the stands and, you know, in the t- on TV as well. They were so involved um, and everything was about them, really. And I think that's it's the right way to go. It should be about them because it is always about the next next generation. Um, and it was trying to get them as engaged as possible and, and try to enjoy a really exciting brand of cricket, which it what it was. You know, you felt like it was all go. You felt like everything was going 100 mile an hour, but it was just so much fun. Um, and I think... The, the women's and the the men's teams were were sort of close together. They were in the same hotel. Um, training was sort of like sometimes it would cross over or when we were finishing, they were coming in or when they were finishing, we were going in. And there were some good friendships made between, you know, across the groups. Um, but even bringing some of, I know even in the men's game as well, we missed out on some world-class players um, with the Aussies and the Kiwis, like they couldn't come over. Um, but I think it was still... A really good start to the you know to the competition and hopefully it'll go on for a very uh, you know a very long time because I think it is there's definitely room for it and I know there's a lot of people or to start with there's a lot of people against it um you got your old hats that don't want to come away from four-day cricket or test test match cricket but I think there's still going to be place for that there's still going to be room for that and but I think the 100 ball was definitely a franchise competition that the ECB needed because I think the Indians and, and the Aussies almost showed us what to do a little bit with the T20s. Um, I don't think we franchised that as well as they have in the past. So I think the 100 ball was definitely something that the ECB could take ownership over and they nailed it to be fair. Yeah, I, I sat in, I, I mentioned this to you briefly before we started recording, but I, I sat in on uh, the advocacy group um, meeting and I just wanted to know, um, just for the listeners that don't know what that is, it's just a, just a PCA meeting, just just a load of big wigs big wigs who were just talking about cricket and there was a real feeling that the double headers was a, a real success the fact that they're both playing on the same day I know that this wasn't initially the plan um yeah. how, how I mean from somebody talk to me about what what it's like playing playing out in front of front of that many people a, 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 a rowdy shall we say edge baston I'll tell you what it's nerve-wracking especially when you're you're not used to it um, I think, you know, we had a franchise competition called the Super League before the 100 came along. And, it, you know, it was a good competition. It served the, its purpose. It, it gave women's cricket what it needed to do. It gave us the, the extra step up um, and the platform for, for us to have the sort of the media attention and so on, you know, with what we needed. But the 100 was just another level up again. It was just, a, you know, a different kettle of fish. And I think we played against the Oval Invincibles in the Eliminator. And we walked out and there was like 12,000 people there. And I know that for the lads, that's probably par for the course or something they, they get quite used to in the end. But for us, it was like, oh, my God. Like, there's 
there's an extra pressure then it, it's you know it brings a, a a different sort of way to look at the game even though you know you hope that it doesn't affect you but it does and I think um yeah I mean it's so exciting though to hear like you know like you bowl a dot ball and the crowd goes mental and you think Christ, <laughs> they're making cricket look so exciting. <laughs> but um, it's really not that exciting, is it? Cricket, <laughs> I know, but yeah, absolutely mental. And it was so nice to see how quickly people got involved and how quick, like, quick the fan base grew. Um, and people were like, I think in the first couple of games, people were sort of coming halfway through our game so that they get there early for the men's game. And I think we definitely sort of a lot of people came halfway through and thought actually the women's cricket is like not that bad. I think we'll come earlier again next week. And you just saw the crowds like slowly building and, you know, like as the games went on, as the competition went on, you had more and more people coming, um, which was quite nice. It was, but it was definitely a surreal moment when um, you sort of think it, we were coming out of the hotel for one game and there were people outside the hotel, like waiting for us to try and get our autograph or, you know, whatever. And I remember turning to Eve Jones being like, Oh my god, this is mental! Like, how do they even know who we are? So, yeah, it was definitely a different, completely different feeling. Yeah, I mean, it sounds as if it was a, a huge success, especially that initiative of the girls and the boys playing on the the same day um, at the same grounds. And fingers crossed that that that, that they get that they get that again. Um, if we move on a little bit now, then from the hundred, yeah, um, and your other role as head of girls cricket um, mm. at, at Shrewsbury School, um, which we do, we, and something else we've talked about a lot, a lot, a lot uh, before we started recording today, didn't we? Other than just the Wi-Fi issues, but <laughs> that's a relatively, a relatively new position. We're both also, well, I went to the school, you're now working at the school. Um, mm. There's a lot more opportunity for the young girls coming through that there potentially wasn't 10 years ago. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that and, and the benefits that you think that you think that has and, and why you think that this is now now about? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I came in January 2016 um, and I initially came as a, a sports grad that offered a little bit of girls cricket. I think the school wanted someone that could come and do some girls cricket because obviously you must have been here when, you know, the cricket centre was only recently built. Um, and obviously the school has a facility like this that they wanted to make the most of. And when you have a facility like this, targeting something like girls cricket as a, as a market was a no-brainer. Um, so they sort of brought me in as a sports grad initially. Um, and then I was here for about two years and they said, look, we want to have head of girls cricket. And I'm pretty sure, I might be wrong, but I'm 95% sure that I'm, I think I'm the first head of girls cricket in the country for schools, especially private schools. And I think it's sort of like one of those things where somebody had to do it. Um, yeah. And it had to be one of either sort of Millfield or Shrewsbury who have the facilities behind them to be able to facilitate a role like that. Um, and so now what you see is sort of it's so slowly started to creep in. I think there's about four or five in the country now. And I know of another four or five schools that have sort of got in touch with me about advertising the role um, and trying to get, you know, somebody that would be interested in the role to sort of to drive it forward. So we were lucky in a way we had. Izzy Wong um, at the school when I got yeah. here and when you have an individual like that that's crazy talented very driven she knew exactly what she wanted and just a very sort of 
attractive personality where everybody wanted to be around her and you know she's quite bubbly quite sociable she sort of pulled people in with her like general athletes around school that thought oh, actually I'll give cricket a go and so Izzy was a great sort of mentor and ambassador for us at the school when it came to girls cricket people she made it look fun she made it look exciting um and she sort of was shouting about it all the time so we were pulling more girls in sort of that way and I think we got to last year we had nearly 100 girls doing cricket across the you know the whole site so from year nine all the way yeah. up to up six and that's what we wanted to get to obviously on the boy side of things they're, they're far more established and they've you know they're trying to produce a professional cricketer every year but initially it was more about just getting more girls involved in cricket and more girls enjoying cricket and seeing it as an as an actual option and then sort of halfway through my time at school it became more of a career path so I think Izzy was lower six when the contracts came in or she possibly might have been upper six when the contracts came in um, and she left school and signed a contract straight away and so now girls can actually see that they can do that for a living it's not just a hobby um, and we're sort of seeing the narrative change slightly because you'll, you'll get boys come into school at year nine and go I want to be a professional regular and they know what they want and they have ambitions early on whereas you don't quite see that with the girls because it hasn't been an option for you know a set amount of time um, yeah and so they don't really tend to make their mind up until they get to like year 11 year 12 where they then turn around and say yeah, I want to be a professional cricketer because it's an option, it's a viable option. And if they work hard enough that, you know, they potentially could get there. So it's been quite a long journey, but people like Anizzy Wong certainly help in an establishment like this in pulling more people in. And now we're actually attracting um, cricket scholars at the lower six level. So they come in as genuine cricketers. They want to be professional cricketers. They'll spend their two years here, just like the boys do. Yeah. Um, in hope that they obviously they reach their potential and, and sort of have that ambition when they leave as well. So, yeah, it's, as I said at the start of the call, it's it's grown rapidly. And I think yeah. in Jan this January coming now, I've done six years. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's definitely snowballed and it's really good to see that prep schools are coming away from rounders, they're doing cricket. So you're getting prep school kids in year nine that have already done cricket. And it wasn't yeah, the case yeah. when I first came six years ago. So it's really exciting, to be honest. And it's, you know, everything's moving forward and hopefully it's just going to keep on going. It's great to hear that Izzy's been such a good ambassador to, to help encourage other people to get involved and that it's more of a participation thing as well. But what, what's it down to behind the scenes? Who was pushing, who was really pushing for this to, you say that you and Mill, yourselves and Millfield were, the, were one of the first to, to do this. What, what, why? Why did it actually come about? I think, as you'd have known, at Shrewsbury, the biggest key to cricket at Shrewsbury is Andy Barnard. And it has been for a long, long time. Um, and he obviously saw the growth in the women's game. Um, and I think it, it it sort of came off the bat. I, he wanted to push girls cricket here. Um, and he wanted girls cricket to be exactly where, where boys cricket is and sort of the girls and boys would be competing on the same level. Um, but I think, to be honest, England winning that World Cup in 2017 did yeah. masses for girls' cricket in general in the country. You were seeing more National Cups being run for schools. 
Um, and then Barla and I actually started one ourselves as well for the girls. So they play a 100-ball competition. Um, so you're under 15 level, they're playing National Cup T20. Under 18s, they're playing a National Cup T20. And then we threw a 100-ball competition then in there as well. And so if you put competitions out there, the schools will come and play and because that's how they then find their fixtures. Obviously, on the boys' side of things, you'd have more a more established fixture list where you have block fixtures, you play against your sedbers, your, you know, your rugby, yeah. your midfield. Um, but on the girls' side of things, you wouldn't necessarily have that block fixture like they do in hockey. Um, so the national competitions massively help because there's a draw made, there's a fixture put there for you, you've just got to get there. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the World Cup, the girls winning the World Cup in 2017 did, you know, did a huge amount for girls cricket. And I think, like I said, the girls could see it on TV. It was, I think it was on free to air, wasn't it? Um, um, I'm not 100% sure. I, I remember uh, watching it, but I, I couldn't tell you whether I was watching well, it on yeah. the BBC so I, or, and I think or like, whatever it was on. Izzy Wong, I think was about year 10 then, but she actually went and watched it at Lord's. And yeah. what that would have done for her, you know, is is huge. And I think if people can see it, they then can actually go for it. And if you don't, yeah. if you can't see it, if you don't know it's there, then, you know, it, it's not an option. So, yeah, I think it, it probably comes down to the to the World Cup and I think just more exposure, to be honest. You know, yeah. England being on social media, on TV, and now the regional stuff being there as well. If if somebody makes something look quite exciting, it's a little bit like TikTok, isn't it? If everybody's shouting about TikTok, everybody wants to do TikTok. So if everyone's going to be shouting about women's cricket, people are going to go, all right, I'll give it a go. See if I like it. I don't really do TikTok, to no, be fair. Yeah. But... But, uh, yeah, I have a 16 year old sister and she does TikTok, so uh, <laughs> I do hear about TikTok every now and then. Um, I should probably should, uh, somebody who wants to get into the media, I should probably wisen up to it a little bit. Um, I, I think I think you're right about the, the, the World Cup. I mean, if you talk to people about why, talk to, to, to people my age about why they play cricket, so many people uh can relate to that 2005 Ashes series, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's moments like those that, that encourage people to get involved. I mean, I remember myself going down to like a local cricket club at like seven and, yeah. and trying to trying to do the, the, the Freddie Flint off when I when I bowl like a, a two mile an hour double bouncer <laughs> and the batter just misses it. Um, so it, I think you're bang on that that, yeah. that that is brilliant. And I suppose it's all it's a bit of a multiplier effect, isn't it? Everything just has a little bit of a knock on impact. Exactly. Yeah. Um, See. So you play for the Central Sparks, you play for Warwickshire, you play for the Birmingham Phoenix, you'll have your role as head of girls sport at Shrewsbury. Obviously here at like Sporting Minds, we're a charity about mental health and yeah. everybody has to keep themselves mentally fresh. It's a bit of a cliche really, isn't it? Mentally mm. fresh, but everybody has to keep their minds uh, focused on things. And I just wanted to ask you really, um, I don't know what your diary is like, but with all those kind of teams and roles and all that, uh, it must be pretty busy. So, well, uh, how do you how do you manage that? How do you make sure that you you can give everything that you do a hundred hundred percent all the time? And 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 yeah. Um, I think the truth is, I think probably sometimes you feel like you don't really give everything hundred percent when you've got when you've got so many plates that you're juggling. Um, I think it's quite hard to give every single part of your life 100%. And so yeah. something does sort of fall by the wayside. And, you know, people talk about sacrifices and, and so on. 
and I think it's just accepting what you're willing to sacrifice and just obviously accept that something isn't going to be as glamorous as it used to be um and I think for me that it probably is my social life um I think if you look back to six years ago when I'd left uni my social life looks extremely different now um but I think it's just finding the time I mean we're lucky enough at Shrewsbury that because it is a boarding school because it is a private school you do have a lot of holidays um yeah. don't get me wrong you definitely deserve them because I mean you know more than anyone else that how full-on a private school can be um and it's not a normal nine to five place is it so I think you know recently we've just had a coach weekend so that would have been you know I was off Saturday Sunday or Friday afternoon Saturday and Sunday and so it was nice did you, that I was did, able you to did you paint did you did you paint the town red well I actually had the chance I was quite lucky I was I went to watch Wales play Cardiff um against Australia oh, did you? and it was oh. a hell of a day I absolutely love my rugby I mean it's I mean like religion isn't it in Wales um so yeah so it was nice to be actually let your hair down in a way and just and sort of relax so you do get those opportunities sometimes they are few and far between but I think the most important thing for me is when I first got here I was working all hours of the day and all hours of the night and I was sat on my yeah. emails at eight nine o'clock at night and I think you just get to a stage where you think right it's seven o'clock that's it laptop goes away you turn your your emails on do not disturb and and you're not bothered then for for the evening so you do have the time then where you can yeah. just calm down put some rubbish on the tv and completely switch off um but i think it's important that you stick to that and think yeah. and don't worry that the world is like melting just because you're ignoring everybody um and you just pick everything up in the morning um I, but it took me a while to get to that point because you always worried that somebody's waiting for a response or you want to sort that now because you've got other things to do in the morning. So, yeah. Has it, would you say it's, I mean, would it have affected your cricket at all? Would you like in terms of if you're, if you're, if you're coaching, if you, if you're doing your role at school, like, I don't know how many, how much training you feel like you need to do the fitness stuff that you need to do. Do you, do you find that sometimes you're like, Oh God, I don't want to do coaching today. I want to get out and practice or, or did you find that that, that affects you at all? I mean, yeah, I think I'd be lying if I said it didn't. I mean, just, you know, you're human. Sometimes you get up and you think, oh, I don't want to do this today because you do get tired and you feel like you're exhausted. But I think it's just remembering what's what's important, really. And I think if you manage your time right, I mean, there are days where you think, all right, I think on my sort of weekly schedule on a Monday, I'm in my program i've got to do yoga i've got to do stretch but you know you've got to stretch or that's the sort of session is sort of like maintenance yeah my yoga is useless um <laughs> hence why i need to be doing it and it sort of gets <laughs> to like seven o'clock on a monday and i'm like oh god i've forgotten to do that but it's i'm lucky that it's a sort of it's quite a relaxing thing to do and so and i don't have to go anywhere for it i can do it in my living room floor so i think it's just as I said, having a schedule, having a diary, making sure that you've got your weekly plan for Sparks, you've got your weekly plan for school, um, your weekly plan for Phoenix. But the nice thing about the 100 is that that's in school holidays. Um, yeah. And so yeah. I haven't got to worry about school as much when I'm playing in that competition. So I do feel probably that my mind is a little bit freer when I'm playing in the in the 100 because the school isn't, you know, the school isn't happening yeah. at the time. 
Yeah, so it is got quite, that responsibility. Yeah, it is quite hard in that first bit of the season where there's school and Sparks going on at the same time. Yeah. Where I've worked Monday to Friday at school and then I'm lucky enough that Shrewsbury give me the Saturday off to go and play. Um, but I think it's something I've worked on quite um, a lot over the last sort of six months or so is when I leave Shrewsbury, you, you leave Shrewsbury, everything, you leave it at the door and then it sparks until you leave sparks. And it took a while to be able to do that. And it's quite difficult sometimes to compartmentalise everything. Um, yeah. But it's making sure that you actually take time for yourself in the evenings and then obviously making sure that you switch off when when I leave the gates at Shrewsbury to go to do something else, that I switch off from Shrewsbury and switch back on whenever I drive back through those gates. So, yeah, it took time to actually manage that. Um, I recently um, was involved in in a, in a story for the PCA on on some some media training that was delivered to to the to the women's cricketers by David Fulton. Fulton, mm-hmm. with the ever-increasing eye of the public and the media, um, how have you found dealing with members of the written media, but also, like, how have you found with being in front of on, in front of a camera? Um, I think I've probably handled it a little bit easier than most, because I was a bit of a strange kid when I was younger. I did, I think probably, this is probably thanks to mum, I used to compete in like national competitions. This is probably breaking news. Not a lot of people know about this. Um, I used to compete in national competitions in singing and acting and stuff like that. And so did I, would, I did on stage as well. Yeah, literally couldn't keep me still. Um, <laughs> so I've always quite liked doing things like that. And because I'd done it at a very, very young age, I sort of got used to it. And so speaking in front of a camera or you know, to the media now, I don't find as daunting. I mean, don't get me wrong, you still get a little bit nervous, especially if what you're saying is going to be heard by, you know, thousands of people. But I sort of, I quite enjoy it sometimes. But, and like an Izzy Wong is is natural at it. You know, she is quite a confident girl. She's, she's you know, well-spoken. But I think there's, I can think of at the top of my head, there's two or three in the Spark squad that find it very daunting and don't like it at all. And if they can not do an interview or not speak to anyone, then, you know, it's a good day for them. They've got away with it. But I think one thing that we don't, you know, you're not, you don't see is once you are in the public eye and if you start to do well, it's sort of people sort of latch onto you quite quickly. And then the minute you, you, you have a bad day or, you know, things haven't gone quite well, they're, they're not afraid to give their opinion. And I think that's what you see a lot on Instagram, Twitter, and, you know, people aren't afraid to call you useless. And Yeah, don't ruin you... my next question. Oh, did I? Sorry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but yes. you think you can sort of, like, take it on the chin because I've, I've got fairly down-to-earth parents and they were never afraid to tell me that I was useless. Yeah. But I think when it comes from someone that you don't know and you're complete strangers, it, it, it hits you in a different way a bit. Yeah, uh, I and I know what you I know what you mean about we we're talking about I know social we will go on to social media abuse, but I used to find that when we were playing at, at Worcester, especially if I was ever in the first team or if we we're in and around the dressing room, 
and the guys are 50 for five at lunch and they kind of open their Twitter feeds to find them getting absolute barrels of dogs abuse from yeah. Joe Bloggs down the road who's probably never picked up a free kick back before in his life. And, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair to the guys, they're always pretty good and just kind of like laughing it off and actually sit there yeah. laughing at the comments and laughing at themselves because I think it's kind yeah. of sometimes it can be a little bit like that, can't it, in terms of yeah. um, so laugh or cry kind of mentality. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you definitely need that. But I think back to the social media training, obviously, we we haven't had as much. Um, and I think, you know, we probably haven't been as exposed as, as the blokes have. But one particular um, thing I can remember where back in the summer, we'd had one session, obviously, with Dave Fulton, and he was great because, you know, he didn't make it easy for us. And, he, you know, he asked quite difficult questions. I think at the time, the Ollie Robinson um, palava was happening. Um, and so a lot of the conversation was about that and, and how you handle questions like that. So he was really good. Um, you know, it wasn't sort of all candy floss and rainbows and, you know, talking about how well you've done all the time. Um, but I think it was really good that we had that day because there was one particular game where Izzy bowled <coughs> two uh, waist high for um, no balls and she got taken off yeah. Um, yeah. in front of five, 6,000 people or even 8,000 people. Um, and we hadn't even got off the pitch and Sky were pulling her over for an interview. And it was something like 15, 20 minutes after she'd been pulled, pulled off. And the first question, sure enough, was, how do you feel that you've bowled two, two waist high no balls? And you have to really fight the urge to be like, well, how do you think I feel? And it's, <laughs> it, I just, yeah, and it, it's moments like that that, I guess people, you don't realise you don't understand until you're in that position and you think that you'd be able to handle it. But it's sort of like, well, it's almost like you've done it on purpose and they want to be like, oh, why did it? Why did you do that? So I think that's the side of it that's not so nice. And you've got to be able to handle that and seem like you're, you're sort of emotionless and, you know, everything's all right and things are happening as Larry all the time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's easy to do an interview when you've just come off and scored 150 and won the game for your team. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's not so easy when you bowl two waist-high no balls and they, they're asking you how you feel. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it is difficult. And I think we definitely need more of it. Um, more training, you know, more... There's a certain language, isn't there, that you have to use when, when you're on air and when you're given a certain interview and, and you don't want to put your, your foot in it almost by saying something that you probably didn't want to but because you're worried about not saying enough or not you know saying too much you just make rubbish up then yeah and it's also true that um at times the media can be vultures can't they they're interested in the story and the narrative that they can create and that that sometimes can be um what do you think what do you think of the importance of it though because i mean it is an absolutely fantastic way of of, of raising the presence of the game, isn't it? So it is important that that, that the girls speak well and can mm. sell themselves and their teammates and at times the, the teams and the competition that they're playing in. Yeah, I mean, definitely has an importance. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be in the role that I am now if it wasn't for more exposure for the women's game through media and through TV. But I think... It's like anything, isn't it? People take it too far. People always take it too far. Um, and I think in moderation, it, it's great. And if you know how to use it in a positive light, you know, it's, it's, it's very, you know, it's a useful tool to have. 
But I think, yeah, as I said, like anything, sometimes it is taken too far and it's just sort of recognising. I think that's when teams sort of need to have good um, team ops managers or social yeah. media managers where they can read the dressing room or they can read the individual <clears throat> go, you know, actually give me 10 minutes and then he'll then or she'll then come and do the interview because she's not doing it right now. Um, and they can sort of protect you in a way or, you know, manage it slightly better so that you've calmed down and then you can go off and do the interview but always but sometimes that's not always the case no. so I think yeah as I said it's important it, you know we wouldn't otherwise you know what people are what are people going to watch what are people going to talk about um yeah it is important but I think if, if people were more sort of mindful and didn't take it as far sometimes and just sort of were in your face as soon as you've just got out or whatever um but yeah, I suppose that's a perfect world, isn't it? And we don't live in one of those. No, you are bang on. We do not. Um, <laughs> so we did briefly touch on social media abuse. Uh, mm. It's becoming um, a real, uh, there's, there's a real stigma attached to it um, at the moment, isn't there? It's becoming increasingly more um I'd say popular it makes it sound really strange I don't mean popular but it's it's becoming more and more apparent I'm not sure if that's because it's being brought to the attention and people are being held held to account more but it, it certainly feels as though it's increasing and people feel as though they can say what they like that what they like to people on social media but it can and there is no doubt about it it can have serious repercussions on mental health um if there's any experiences, I don't. You don't have to share any experiences. But how, how, how do you? How would you have? How have you dealt with that? And how have your teammates at times dealt with that when you're getting mm. some stick from some random who knows nothing? Yeah, I think. I mean, it's it is difficult. You know, it's not easy. Something like that is never going to be easy. But I think it's one of those where if you've if you've lost or you haven't done very well that day, you know to stay off social media um, and don't go looking for it. You can mute people. You can mute certain words or hashtags or whatever on, on Twitter and Instagram. And we're very lucky that the PCA bring people in that shows how to do that. And they do look after us incredibly well. Um, so you can protect yourself a little bit. But I know, you know, of certain cases where it's got so bad that people have come off social media. You know, they've deleted their Twitter, they've yeah. deleted their Instagram. Yeah. And, people shouldn't have to do that just to protect themselves. And I, but I think it's far too easy for people to be negative and say not so nice things than it is to be positive, um, which is a sad state of affairs, really. Um, but I think, I mean, look, everybody's got an opinion, um, but it would just be nice if it came across in a more constructive way rather than uh, like a bit of a barking match. But I think you, you know as a cricketer that if you've had a rubbish day or things haven't go so, gone so well or something's gone majorly wrong, then the last thing you want to be doing is put you know turning your social media on because you know it's going to be there and you know it's going to come at some point. Um, but like I said, you shouldn't really have to be in a position where you can't just sit there, relax, and just scroll through your Twitter and see what else is going on in the world outside of you know your cricket bubble. Um, but. Like I said, we get support from PCA. You know, they look after us. They make sure that things are in place that we don't have to see that. Um, but I think, like you said, if you're reading them with your teammates, 
and you're in the change room and there's a few of you around, you can laugh about it because you're there together and you're supporting each other and you're, you know, you can turn around to each other and say, oh, that's a load of rubbish. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. And it's fine and you're laughing and joking then. But I think it becomes more difficult or it is very difficult if you're sitting in a room by yourself and you're reading them. That's, you know, no good to anyone. Um, So I think staying away from that, staying away from situations like that is where you're going to be most safe, really. And people seem to forget that everyone has emotions, don't they? Like, I mean, if you take the example of football, I mean, just because people earn £250,000 a week or however much ridiculous, stupid money, doesn't mean that, that, that they don't have feelings and they don't read what's written about them and that it doesn't affect them. And sometimes that's just, it's just taken out, it can be taken out of all context. And it, some of the stuff yeah. that's said is so, is so nasty and you would not say oh, yeah. that to them in person, would you? No, and I think the public almost think it's their given right that just because they're... They pay their sky fees. Yeah, just because they're a famous athlete that they can talk to them as if they're a statue that's got no emotions and I think people forget they're just like um you know they're a normal human being just like you and I are you know they're just because they're pretty good at something doesn't mean that they're not human um I mean don't get me wrong you see certain things that Josh Butler think do it does and you're like yeah you're not human but um I think people are like you know they forget, don't they? In that, don't get me wrong. It's because they're passionate and they want us to do well. And you know, they don't like losing as much as we don't. But I think they sort of they're like keyboard warriors, aren't they? They're hot headed at the time and they're just firing off. And you think, well, if we're expected to be better people, better human beings, and not fire off when we're hot headed, you know, other other people should sort of be expected to do the same. You know, just because footballers, as you say, are earning two hundred and fifty k. A year it doesn't mean that Joe Bloggs can act completely differently just because he's on like 250 quid a week. So yeah, it's uh it's frustrating, I guess, because everybody just expects sports stars and athletes and famous people just to be, you know, clean as a whistle and be, you know, an angel in in the you know in the in the real world when you know they're just human beings. Hmm. Just moving away from that slightly, yeah. um, and just to just to just to um, to round off because I'm aware that uh, this is your afternoon off, so I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, <clears throat> we, what what I just wanted to know a little bit is what are your aspirations in the next next couple of years? You've got obviously you've got your various commitments. Well, like where do you see yourself in, in in a couple of years time? Really, I'm really intrigued to know what whether you set yourself goals or, or what your aspirations will be for the next couple of years. I think um, I definitely want to be you know the best professional cricketer I can be, and that's going to be my main main priority definitely for the next three or three to five years. Um, if I can be a professional cricketer for 10 years, I think that would take me to 38, 37. If my body allows for that to happen, um, then I would consider myself pretty lucky. Um, that's what I definitely want in the next sort of, you know, however long to be a professional cricketer for as long as I can and to enjoy that life for as long as I can. Um, whether England colours come along, I don't know. Um, it would be definitely something that I would love and, and you know, really thrive on the experience of. 
But I think for now, my main goal is just to be the best professional cricketer I can be and and hold on to sort of that status for as long as I can, um, because it certainly is a hell of a good life. Um, and I think, you know, we've spoken about the pitfalls of it and the negatives that it brings, but, you know, it is a great life. Um, and it's something that it doesn't last forever. And a place like this does last forever. And some, you know, a place like this is is always here. You know, it's something you can always come back for. You know, private schools are always going to be here. But the life of a professional cricketer, it has a sell-by date. So I think it's just to enjoy that for as long as I can. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, Gwen, everyone at Sporting Minds would just like to th- thank you for giving up your time um, and talking to us today. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. It has. It's been a pleasure to speak to speak to you too. It's been great to get the inside track on the hundred and get uh, and to get your thoughts on some other contemporary issues as well, um, guys. That's it for another episode from me. Uh, please join us again next time. Bye for now. <laughs>